Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. This is Ryan Frederick with AWH, and this is Beyond the Roadmap, a podcast about building products. With me today is Piper Lawson, uh, who does UX for Stack Overflow. Piper, thank you for Hi. joining. Thanks for having me. So we're going to focus mostly around UX as part of the product process, but we'll work in some other th- things too as part of the conversation. We sort of met, but not really, at a hackathon that was at Ohio University I was going to say a couple of weeks ago, but it's actually probably more like, you know, a month or so ago. And um, I was there, you know, advising teams. You were there advising teams. I had to scoot sort of early to get back to um, Columbus for something. Is that something that you enjoy doing, going into those sorts of environments and coaching people up on what to care about and what not to care about as they're sort of thinking about a, a product and solving a problem? Yeah, I really enjoy helping mentor those that are just kind of coming into the scene. I'm always really grateful when I sit there and I look at my career now and at the beginning of my career, the mentors that I had and how they kind of helped shape the designer I am today and helped me get to the point in my career that I'm at. So I like being able to help those and hopefully help them shape their future and the future of product in general. That's good because typically when I'm mentoring, I just I go in and I talk to them, and then within 30 seconds they're like, "Get this guy away from us." <laughs> uh, I just end up typically challenging them, you know, in in you know very um, difficult ways about, oh, you know, that's not going to be as near, nearly as easy as you think it's going to be, and and so I try to be that that very sort of dissenting, challenging voice in a positive way, but to say, hey, you know, you think, you know, because there's there's often a team that's like, oh, we want a, our revenue to be based upon ads. And I'm like, do you know how many users you have to get to before you're going to be able to monetize ads and you're going to be appealing to advertisers? That's like way, 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 way down the road. You've got to figure out today how you're going to be able to monetize that and have that make sense. So how did you get into design? How did you get into UX as a specific focus in design? Are you classically trained and you you went to some fancy design school? So I went to BGSU and they have a major called VCT, which stands for Visual Communication Technology. And what the major was designed to do was to really kind of be this all-encompassing digital person for companies that need like photographers and videographers and print designers and web designers, right? Because at the time you were really starting to notice that every company needed someone that could do it all, especially these smaller companies that couldn't afford these large teams. So that's kind of where I got my start. And you were in this major, you're asked to choose two out of four of those kind of paths. So I went down the print and web path as my specialties. And after school, I was lucky enough to find a visual designer position at a um, agency called Key Lime Thai outside of Chicago. And I feel like I got really lucky because the first job in design is by far the hardest to land. You really have to find someone that 
sees the potential in you. Yeah, that's sort of willing to take a shot. Yeah, because you really don't have a good portfolio. You really don't have, even though BGSU um, requires three internships, it's still, you don't really have that like in-house expertise, right? You weren't sitting there at a computer designing for 40 hours a week. It was just like a part-time internship. So um, you really have to find someone that believes in you. And I got lucky to find a company and a creative director that really saw potential in me. And so although it was a visual design company, it was right around the time where you really started seeing that products couldn't just digital products and products in general just couldn't get a couldn't get away with just having good design. There needed to be a thought process behind it. And out of all the designers that were were there at the time, my creative director really kind of saw that I had the mind to sit there and take a step back and think about the user and solve complex problems. So he kind of took me under his wing and that's really where I got into user experience. We took the time to think of complex problems um, for mobile applications, for content strategy, information architecture, like the whole, the whole realm. And I think we talked earlier about like how mentorship can be so important. And that's like, that's always the example that I go back to, like my first mentor and how he really helped shape my career and brought me into UX. And I'm forever grateful for it. So how do you now think about because it sounds like you had um, a, a vision really early and clarity around the fact that UI and UX were very different, very different things, and that painting, you know, pretty pictures and screens is is one aspect of it and making it visually appealing, but having it be functional and having it be usable and having the the friction of use, you know, low, etc. It sounds like you had a really good understanding of that early on how do you see it now and how has your sort of view of the difference between ux and ui sort of evolved and changed or just become more clear maybe i think um even the way that many people define ux and ui is kind of changing i think when you first when ux first came on the on the scene it seemed like this over encompassing like design thing where you would think about the user's experience before and during the design and after the design. But I think now, at least when I sit there and I think about it, it seems completely separate from UI. The user experience really is the experience that the user has through the site. And you need to think about how that's going to work even before you think about the UI. And the UI is really just the way that the user is able to interact with that experience on kind of like a microscopic level, right? It's just the interaction with that digital product where the user experience can even expand outside of that digital product. It can go even to encompass like their journey with sales and customer support and um, how they're thinking about your product outside of it. It's a lot larger than, than just the UI. And I think that, again, where I used to think that UI was a part of UX, I just think that they're two completely separate entities now. And how do you, and you do UX at, at Stack Everflow. I think I might have mentioned that earlier, but if I didn't, I've mentioned it now. So I do, I'm technically a product designer at okay. Stack Overflow. So that means that I do UX and UI. Okay. And how does product design and being a product designer sort of fit into the overall product teams and product process? So I'm very lucky in that Stack Overflow 
highly values user experience design. Um, so we're able to kind of sit at the, the front of the product and help make decisions about what's going to happen next, what features we're interested in. And I think that's really important because it's not just about taking the features that come down from you know the top and saying, let's make this a better experience. It's about taking a step back and thinking about the gaps in your product as a whole and helping find those gaps and making that entire experience better for your user. So again, it's not about being reactive, it's about being proactive. And that's really how you're gonna create that seamless user experience. So it sounds like product design at, at Stack Overflow has a, a pretty large voice in the, the product roadmap and ultimately the manifestation of that roadmap and the feature functionality you know, piece and, and how things either get evolved or things get added and, and in what priority. Definitely, definitely. And that's pretty unique, actually, because yeah. even as product management and product as a discipline, and I'm making, you know, air quotes, which is, you know, sort of ridiculous since, you know, there's no visual um, component to this, but, you know, we'll just roll with it. That's unique because even as product and product management are becoming more evolved, mature practices and, and crafts, product management now design still it takes its direction now from product management typically. And I'm not sure that that's, you know, ultimately the best. I just get uncomfortable when there are very delineated hierarchies because I think that the best products get built by multifaceted product teams where different people lead at different points based yeah. upon what's happening and what what is needed at that point versus someone always being in the lead and someone always, you know, having a, um, a role at the top of a very hierarchical structure. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, so we do have also have PMs at Stack Overflow and um, we're very lucky because it feels like a partnership. And I would say that the PMs would say that too, right? So we're able to kind of work together to create these roadmaps. And we have like, as designers, we have our specialties and our knowledge, and they're able to bring their specialties and their knowledge. And we're able to put those together to kind of create the best or a, one of the strongest roadmaps possible. How do you guys, you mentioned being proactive versus reactive. How do you go about being proactive and identifying things that maybe you haven't even heard from customers yet that are things that you should add or evolve in the product? So um, I'll give you an example. So yeah. recently we decided to do a, like a vision refresh for the, the product that I work on. And the way that we're doing that is we have a researcher as well. And that researcher has gone out ahead of us and she's done a lot of qualitative and quantitative data collection about struggles that our users have and also things that they find most important. And through that, we're able to kind of take a step back and look at that picture and try and find patterns together. So working with the researcher, you know, uh, the design, PMs, some representation from other groups like development. And we're able to take a step back and really try and find those patterns and identify the places that we have gaps in our product. And so that's just one example of how we try and be proactive. 
And from there, we're going to come up with, I guess, a general vision for, you know, the next three to five years, and then also a roadmap for, you know, the foreseeable future, and try and get to that vision that we have based on those findings, and other things that we've heard from like customer success and sales. And is that a continual process? Is a researcher, for instance, you know, always engaging with users and looking at analytics and and then, you know, mirroring sort of qualitative and quantitative research and then and then circling back with design and product management and development. Is that a continual process where the researcher says, okay, we've now we've identified this, we've learned this, and now I'm going to go, you know, dig into some other areas. Um, how, how does, how does the research is sort of the tip of the spear typically happen? So that's, that's the goal. The goal is to kind of keep our research always a few steps ahead of us, always being proactive. Now, of course, that's not always going to be the case. Sometimes we'll have, you know, basic um, user experience research that needs to be done and research will have to come and help with that if design is too busy to perform that research themselves. But the goal is to always have research a few steps ahead of us, trying to find new opportunities or holes, anything like that, that we can come in and help improve the product from. And you mentioned before we started that you have a specialty, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but you can you can correct me in sort of data driven design. What do you mean by that? Why do you think that's become a specialty of yours? Why do you like that? And how do you leverage that as part of your work at at Stack Overflow? Yeah. So um, one of the aspects of design that really interests me is like data heavy design. So anything like reporting, dashboards, things like that. I like being able to collect numbers from uh, customers' actions and be able to turn that into consumable information for our users. I think for the product that I work on, which is the talent product, so having developers come in and apply to jobs and then having recruiters get those applications or source and look for developers themselves, I think it's a really important skill to have. So I'd always enjoyed it. And this product has helped me continually build on that. And I think it's just a lot of fun to be able to take that information, give it back to our users, and allow them to improve the things that they're working on by delivering that kind of data to them. How much iteration do you do you like and, and do you do as part of the, the, the product at Stack Overflow and the talent product specifically? And how do you guys think about sort of iteration and, and the, the size of sort of releases and maybe trying to roll a bunch of things up versus micro sort of releases to then get feedback on those and to evaluate usage? Do you guys lean a little bit more micro or a little bit more macro from a release and then sort of iteration perspective? We really like to take it depending on the feature, okay. right? So um, we had a really large reporting feature and it didn't make a whole lot of sense to roll it out in super small pieces because it was a large change. We still wanted to get feedback from customers every now and then. So we were able to build it in small steps still. We were able to break it down. It just wasn't being released to the public as often. But as we started progressing through it, 
we would um, find other ways to test with users. So either by taking screenshots and doing like usertesting.com or even having customer success set us up with a client to just take a sneak peek and get their feedback. But then there are other features that it does make sense to release like bit by bit. Like if we're trying to make changes to like job ads or the job board and the deliverables make sense to kind of build on, then we'll try and release like once a sprint or however we see fit. So I like that we don't necessarily depend on one way or the other. We're able to look at the feature and figure out what makes sense as far as a release schedule. And I'm assuming I'm assuming you guys are agile. And how agile are you in that are you sort of pure agile and that you're you've got you know scrum masters etc or have you adopted agile in some stack overflow specific way i feel like it's real i don't know if anyone's pure agile i agree right? with you i'm gonna i'm gonna stop asking that because no one is because one it's almost impossible to be and at least as a as a product service firm as we are at awh most clients are not capable of operating in a pure agile manner and, and operating that sort of iteratively and that dynamically. And then there are just tenants of it that, that are hard to maintain the purity and the essence of agile. So how have you guys spun it and adopted it so that it works for, for Stack Overflow? Yeah. So um, we basically, at the heart of it, we're trying to break our projects into two-week shippable again, air quotes, um, yep. shippable <laughs> areas. So even if they don't go out to the user, we're able to say that we've completed this item in two weeks and able to move on to another item in two weeks. And one of the things that I really like about Stack Overflow is even though it feels like it works better than any company that I've been at, like the product process works better than any company I've been at in the past, we're still constantly trying to improve it. We're constantly trying to get better, finding ways to deliver um, like a better percentage of projects every sprint. And um, we do retros like once a month. I like one of my favorite things is we don't have a daily standup. Um, I actually just shared a post that I saw this morning on LinkedIn where the guy was making a case for not doing standups. And it, so why did you guys move away from daily standups? I think that I'll, I don't know about the other teams at Stack Overflow, but our team, I, I like that all of us really seem to agree that we just don't like meetings. We work really well async, and I think that's a benefit to being a full remote team is that we've gotten very good at being async and sharing our progress async where an in-person meeting seems silly. Redundant. Yeah. We do have one weekly meeting and it can last anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour. And when it lasts an hour, it's usually because it's just a sprint planning meeting. And so is most or all of your team remote? So most of my team is remote. We have a few developers that work outside of the New York office, but then we have like myself out here in Columbus, we have um, someone in Amsterdam, we have someone in Toronto, and then we have someone in South America, and someone in Seattle, maybe? 
And it sounds like it's working relatively well, relatively efficiently and effectively. Why do you think that is? Is it does that speak to Stack Overflow's fundamental culture and and product culture, or are there other things that that are important um, threads and components that make your particular remote team work well? Um, I think it has to do mostly with culture. So one of the things that Stack Overflow does is even if you're working in the office, you act as if you're working remotely. So every developer at Stack Overflow that works in the New York office gets their own office. So you have to bring your own chair? (laughs) You do not have to bring your own chair. And actually, they supply um, their remote workers with chairs. So I don't even have to bring my own chair at home. Whoa. Yeah. Fancy. So you got one of those fancy, like, Aeron chairs? Um, I don't know if it's Aeron, but it feels fancy. Most I say that mostly because there was, like, a small person size. So I was able to get, like, a small person size chair, which is great because then, like, my husband can't sit in it because he's not a small person. I'm like, this is my chair. Chairs come in people sizes now? I they no, do. I, I had no I, idea. I didn't either. But when I saw the small person size, they're like, perfect for someone that's 5'5 five, five or shorter. I'm like, Done. <laughs> And it's so funny because I'll look at it like next to my desk and it does look like a mini chair. It looks like a small person's chair. Yeah, it does. But it works well and it's comfortable. So that's awesome. So we've now discovered the key to effective remote teams. Well, the effective teams, period, is properly sized chairs based upon the size of the human that's going to use it. Yep. That and standing desks. And standing desks. Yes. Yes. Standing desks are, I mean, I work out of coffee shops a lot just because I like the the activity and buzz, but I will almost always find a place that I can stand up just because it, it, I don't know, it seems to help with clarity and focus too, where when you're sitting down, there is, um, I don't know, I think that just the activity of sitting and becoming sedentary changes our approach to the work that we're doing at the time. I could have totally made that up. And that could just be my own personal experience, but it seems there seems to be a correlation there, at least for me. Yeah, I think that when you're working like anywhere remotely or somewhere else, you have to find something to do to kind of wake up your mind, whether it's just standing or like if you're in an office going to like the water cooler or if you're at home, like just like walking your dog or something, just something to like wake up the brain. And I, I would agree that especially if you have like a long day of, of meetings or something solid to do that just the simple task of like working from standing up and then sitting down and then standing back up, like just moves things around and like kind of shakes it up. There is, um, I've seen lots of conversation and posts and articles lately about the value of, of roadmaps and one, the fundamental value, and then two, the value of very sort of, you know, verbose and detailed roadmaps, and then and then very sort of cursory roadmaps. What's your view of, of roadmaps? How do you guys leverage roadmaps at Stack Overflow? Because roadmaps now seems to be a, a, a hot topic of conversation inside of the product space. Yeah, so um, I guess that kind of ties back to our talk about like, how we're working on like vision planning right now. So our vision plan is like supposed to span like how we see our product evolving for like the next three to five years. And from there, we'll take and make like a shorter roadmap for like anywhere from like a quarter to a year and plan it out. But I mean, we typically 
plan for like a quarter, maybe two at a time, depending on what our focus is. And I would say that that might be like the extent of, of our road mapping. So are those like, are you d- defining like epics at that point or detailed features or are you keeping it, you know, more high we keep, level? We keep it pretty high level. We okay. actually don't really use epics. So, okay. which you, I'm grateful for. What are, what are you working into the roadmap then? What's that roadmap sort of representing and, and defining? So our roadmap's just kind of defining the focus of our our development teams for the next quarter or two, depending on what the focus is. So um, we'll either find something like a potential or a problem that we're trying to solve in the next quarter, and we'll make that part of our, our roadmap. Okay. We're now at a point where I think there's recognition across the board that nailing the proper UX trumps everything else. It trumps, you know, trumps code, it trumps UI, um, it, it trumps, you know, you know, wherever, you know, the product's being hosted because we used to be, we used to be concerned about IO, you know, throughput and stuff like that. And those things have become, you know, um, mostly irrelevant conversations now. Why do you think it took so long? Because I, I now talk to people about the fact that the 80-20 used to be 80% of the focus was on the code and development and 20% was on sort of UX, UI, and even product for a great, you know, to a great extent. And now that's sort of been flipped, that even though development might be 20% or 80% of the cost and 80% of the time, the 80% of the value is now UX, UI, product management, you know, et cetera. Why do you think it took a while for that transition and that respect to sort of flip to where it moved from development to the other things, not to you know disrespect development, but you have to know that you're building the right thing in the right at the right time, right? And so, but it took us a while to sort of get to that point. Why do you think that that is? So I think that there's a couple different factors there. One being that when UX really first started emerging people, especially the smaller the company, are afraid to spend money on something they're not sure is going to improve their product or improve their sales, right? I think a lot of companies have like a sales-driven mind, like, is this going to directly impact the revenue that we're making? And initially, and sometimes even still, it's very hard to say that investing money into UX is going to increase that revenue. A lot of teams think at a smaller a smaller scale than that. Like they go for the things that are going to directly increase that revenue initially. But I think over time as you start to see products that invested money into this, I think a good example is TurboTax. They invested a lot of money into UX and you could really see how much it helped their product, it helped their revenue. And when you start seeing that pattern across the board, then these other companies are able to say, oh, well, it UX over time, like once invested in it, was able to increase the amount of users that they had and eventually the revenue. It's not a fast solution. It's not a quick fix. But I think once people started seeing the pattern that it does work, that 
people started investing that money into UX. TurboTax is, is an interesting example because they also, once they sort of re-engineered their UX, it actually then bled over into their marketing. And they actually used their user experience right in their marketing to say, this is so ridiculously, we've made it so ridiculously easy for you to use the product and to file your taxes that you're going to almost like filing your taxes. I do like filing my taxes because of TurboTax. I will be honest. It's so pleasant. But that's because you're a UX nut and professional. That may be. Yes. I was, <laughs> the average person probably still does not really enjoy filing their taxes. But that's, but that's a great example of the, the UX being more than UI, right? Yeah. And, and then flowing over into marketing and how they're now marketing the product and the fact that their user experience is a differentiator. Right. Yeah. And I think TurboTax is also a great example. I know we talked earlier about like the differences between UX and UI and you say how it flowed over into their marketing again, like UX pans more than just the product, right? It goes into that, into that marketing and our conversation today about talking about how, you know, happy with TurboTax that I am like my experience with TurboTax is still happening, even though I'm not using TurboTax right now. But I do have to give them credit as well for their UI because their user experience alone couldn't have done that, right? The, the way that you're interacting with it is also amazing. And so kudos to their UI team as well. Yeah, the iconography is good. Mm -hmm. right? It's clear and obvious what it's asking you to do. And visually, you understand where you are in the process and what it's asking you for. And there are lots of sort of coach marks along the way too. So if you are unsure, you know, you can get to, you know, a, a, an answer pretty quickly about where you are in the process. Yeah. And I think that that's a great example of a company that, and a product that got to the point of saying, we're probably going to be, uh, we're going to have, we're limiting our, our footprint if we don't sort of reimagine, you know, the user experience and then get serious about uh, and get serious about the user experience. Yeah. I think a lot about friction these days because I think we are now to the point of you can be you can be solving a problem that people care about and you can be doing it in a way that is um, relatively effective. But if there's still too much friction as part of someone adopting or continuing to use the, the product, that could kill it, even though there are lots of other components that look like you've gotten right. And overcoming that friction, I think, is, is something that a lot of product people are still not paying enough attention to uh, because they, they think, okay, we've nailed the user experience. We've got a beautiful user interface. And what they haven't done is then sort of stepped back and said, how much friction is still part of this process? How do you think about friction and how does Stack Overflow sort of think about how do we get this as close to a user's current state as possible so that the friction between where they are and where our product is, that that gaps as close as possible? Yeah, so I think that Friction is an interesting problem that happens when you don't look at user experience as being iterative, right? So a lot of companies now that are investing money into user experience will hire like just contractors and they think that they can come in and get it done and that's it. But the problem is, is that 
this friction does happen. So you improve, you go in and you work on the user experience a little bit, and then you need to take a step back and see what is still going wrong, what can still be improved. And by continually going in and fixing something, taking a step back and looking at what you fixed and talking to users and seeing if there's any issue still and then going back in again, you're really able to continually lessen the friction that is happening. It's like technology is constantly changing. Our users' needs are constantly changing. So it's really hard to completely remove friction, but by doing this process iteratively and continually looking at it and not just hiring a user experience designer or researcher once and being done is a great way to kind of battle that friction. Yeah. And it's, um, it's not just sitting back and, and thinking, Oh, because we did a, we did a redesign, right. That now you know, we're done. Right. I think that there's, I think we're just now sort of realizing that this friction is, is a significant challenge. And if you're not really close to somebody's and you don't get your product as, as close to and aligned with a, a way the user wants to use the product and in sort of intuitively wants to in, engage with it, then you're limiting your product's you know, um, effectiveness and efficacy ultimately. As you think about Stack Overflow, do you guys, and, and especially on the talent product, do you guys look at the product as being a fairly mature, evolved product now? Um, I think parts of it are more mature than others, but I don't think that we ever say that you know it's mature because we're constantly trying to improve it. There's definitely parts of Stack Overflow where we know are like in their infancy. So like Stack Overflow Teams, for example, is a relatively new product. So we know that that one's new, but like even the Stack Overflow community or Stack Overflow talent that have been around for a while, I don't think that they're ever referred to as mature. Do you think about, if you do, how do you think about doing UX and design differently for an early product than a more mature product, even if uh, a product is on, you know, version, you know, three or, or, or something, do you think about those processes uh, and the work very differently? Or do you think that whether you're coming out with version one of a product or you're on version 10 of a product, the work is, is essentially the same and your mindset is essentially the same around it? I would say that my mindset is essentially the same. I think the one thing that you run into and not just at Stack Overflow, but anywhere when you have a newer product, things tend to move a lot faster because you're trying to get that better user experience out there to hold on to those new users and create that revenue and create your product's worth. So I think that that's the biggest difference between a younger product and an older product is the speed that you move. Yeah. How much do you go into problem understanding and problem context before you even start to think about the right user experience to solve that problem? Because that's another area that I think that we're still somewhat lacking is I think that we're, and, and part of it is I think just 
the way we're, we're wired as humans that we, you know, we're craftspeople. We want to start building. We want to start making something and designing something and building something. And we often don't invest enough time in the problem understanding and problem context to ensure that we're coming out of the gate with something that is as valuable and, and close to solving the problem as possible. Because part of problem understanding is that we have to interact with other humans and that can be messy and that can be complicated and and users don't always know what they want but they will raise their hand and say i have a problem and then from there that can be it can be a little bit of a struggle to understand the the dynamics and the details of the problem how do you sort of think about problem understanding and context and the depths that you should go as part of the user experience definition and creation process yeah, so this is something that we're really working on right now as like a product team at Stack Overflow. And that's kind of, what we're working on specifically is deciding when it's appropriate to dive in deeper to the problem before the solution and when it's appropriate to just create a solution. And then, and then see what happens and, yeah. then, and then iterate really fast. Yes, exactly. And that's really difficult. So we typically always start with like a hypothesis. So what do we think is wrong and what do we think could solve it? And then from there, we really need to, to step back and say, is this something that we can just be risky about and just iterate really quickly and get out the door? Like, is it going to hurt us if it goes wrong? Can we just pull it back? Or is this something that is a larger change and needs more understanding up front? So I think at, at one point we were really doing too much risk-taking. Then at another point we were doing too much problem-solving up front or like problem research up front. And now it's really it's a focus to sit there and look at the, our hypothesis and decide which route do we want to go and be a lot smarter about the route that we go. Whose responsibility is to is it to create the hypothesis? Do you do that as as a as a product team, or does the product manager sort of you know take the baton and and create the hypothesis? How do you end up getting that hypothesis context? So it could come from the designer. It could come from a researcher's research in like one of their reports. It could come from the project manager, or it could even come from like the the product owner. So it really, there are multiple places that it could come from, but it typically, no matter where it com comes from, it always comes back and lands in the middle of that product group for everyone to look at and think about. Okay. Do you care about and do you pay attention to sort of UX, UI product design standards that are out there and people and other organizations saying, this is the right way to do user onboarding. This is the right way to do, you know, coach marks as we were talking about in TurboTax. Do you pay much attention to standards and, and do you guys implement those or do you look at a, a situation and say, here's what's appropriate for this situation and we don't really care too much about how other companies have approached this? So I think it depends on the standard, right? So I like as far as form standards, I take those very seriously. They've done a lot of research and eye tracking on it. And there's really no point in my eyes to breaking that. There's enough data there to say this is probably this the is way the that... This is the right way to do yeah, a form. Right? Yeah. But there are other things like onboarding where 
you have multiple people saying this is the right way to do onboarding. And especially onboarding is so specific to your type of user, right? So on on my team, on the talent team, we have two completely different users. We have developers that look at our job board, and then we have recruiters that are on the talent side or on the, the client side. And those really range, right? You could have a technical recruiter or you could have um, like a mom and pop shop looking for their first developer and, you know, they get on the computer once a week. So their onboarding is going to look significantly different than the onboarding for our developers who clearly um, are pretty computer capable. Do you, in that case where you're, you have sort of a two-sided equation where the, the, each side needs to meet in the middle, are you focused on them very separately and independently? And how much, if at all, do you then look at that intersection and, and consider the intersection as you're working to serve the developer side and the talent acquisition side? So they are technically looking at two different products. So we don't need to worry about the intersection between the developers and the clients. However, our clients can have a very wide range of technical ability. So that's that's the area where we really have to lean on the side of being cautious, right? So assume that they are less technical and hope that those that, and make it easy for those that are very technical to be able to bypass or get through without being caught up by the handholding that are needed for the non-technical. And I think that's that's a lot of products, right? We're lucky on the developer side that You've got sort of an informed yes, exactly. user group, right? Right. But I think for most products, you usually assume that you don't, and there is a bit of hand-holding, but then you also typically have those that are capable, so you need to account for and out for them or getting out of their way, which is always a fun balance of like UX, right? Right. If a company isn't currently or even an individual team inside of a company isn't currently good at UX, how can they begin to make some strides to get better at it? So I think there's a few different things. The simplest answer is to take a step back and put yourself in their shoes. I really think that our developers do a great job of this. Like they're, they're not user experience experts, but they're able to when they come across problems themselves, they're able to take a step back and make these decisions like, I don't know that this would be easy for a user. Or I have this concern for our user. And to think of you're designing something with them in mind is the best first step. A second step, if you want to learn more, is there are so many online resources now for user experience specifically because it is such a hot topic. So you can get free articles on like Medium, or you can even go and get courses through like Treehouse and Linda and things like that. How much do you guys leverage? Because there's also a fair amount of debate right now on the proper use and, and veracity of uh, things like personas and user stories and job stories and jobs to be done. What are you guys doing on that front? And what's your view of the value of those tools and, and actions 
in helping to inform a really great user experience as soon as possible. Yeah, so we actually just ran a jobs to be done. Uh, so we we currently use that. We're not using like a formal version of personas because I, I would say just because our design team is so small that, I mean, there's just a few of us. So we all kind of understand our user and where they're at. However, I think it becomes really helpful as you have a larger design team and it, the user types that you have are a little less clear or hard to communicate across a larger design team. So I think user personas can come in handy there. Do you think that um, there is more applicability in a B2C product than a B2B product where on the B2B side, the users, it might be easier sort of to understand who they are because most B2B products don't serve everybody inside of a company. They serve a very specific discipline and user group inside of a company where B2C is well, we don't know who's going to show up, you know, at our site today to use the product, or we don't know who's going to download, right? I mean, if you think about the challenges of like a any B2C product, really, like Uber, right? They don't know whether it's going to be somebody who's just heard of it. I mean, I don't know how that's possible, but, you know, somebody who's just heard of it and who's still like wondering, well, you know, how does this all work, you know, versus somebody who's very sort of app savvy and, and sort of transit savvy, do you think that there are significant differences between leveraging personas and user stories and those kinds of things from B2C to B2B products, I guess, is the the sum of that rambling question? Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely makes sense that you would have, for the most part, a wider range or a wider audience when you do a B2C. However, it's not always the case, right? For Stack Overflow, our audience is pretty predictable. Not always the case, right? But um, it's pretty predictable. However, like our talent, like their technical ability, our, so our, B to, our B2B side, mm -hmm. their technical ability is a little bit wider range. So we're, we have like the opposite yeah, problem. Yeah, you guys actually have like an inverse of what would be typical. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. But I think that um, either way, you could leverage the use of user personas. I think it's... A great exercise, again, if you have a larger team and you need to understand your audience across that larger team, or even if you have a small team and you're just getting into user experience and you want to get to know your user better, I think user personas are just a great way, again, to get to know your user better and to understand your user across like your entire team, like if, it, if that user is not clear. And I suppose it does become more important the wider your audience is, but it's also a little bit harder to predict the the wider your audience is, right? Because you don't want to sit there and have 12 user personas. That's not helpful for anyone. You might as well just say, fuck it, everyone. Right. Yeah, those are interesting challenges when you have a very broad or potentially broad user base, mm -hmm. um, that it's it's hard to narrow those things down and and to get comfortable. And uh, I was having a conversation with somebody a couple of, a couple of weeks ago, and he basically, you know, said at some point, and I, I agree because you speed matters in, in all of this and, you know, the, and the pace at which you're iterating matters greatly. 
And he basically said, we just need to get enough information so that we can generally feel like we are headed in the right direction. Because if you spend too much tr time trying to get more information than, than that, you've probably over-invested on that side of you know the research and trying to get more information. And sometimes you just need to be able to, and we were talking about it earlier, the difference between deep problem understanding and then enough just to say we're going to build something and then we're just going to iterate really fast yeah. because the consequence of releasing it and iterating fast is very low if we miss the mark and i think that that uh, but you've got to be comfortable with that right you've got to be comfortable iterating at that fast of a pace you've also got to be comfortable putting something out there that you know may not be you know immediately loved and you almost have to sort of set the, the direction that we're going to redirect really fast. So, you know, if we didn't hit the mark, you know, that's okay. Cause we're going to, we're going to be back at you with something else, you know, really quickly. We have a, um, a client at, uh, at AWH that I was having a conversation with, and this is her first time building a software product. She has a services firm. And one of the things that she said to me was, it's fascinating that when you take a early version of a product to users, they focus on everything that's not there versus what is there. And she was like, that is some weird human psychology and sociology. So I've been thinking a lot more about that. And I actually ended up finding a study by a neuroscientist and I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to forget his name, but he, basically said that we're all humans are always in seeking mode and i think that's what's happening in situations like that so how do as product people and and product designers how do we deal with the fact that when we come out with a product often users are going to be not valuing what's there as much as what it doesn't do especially with an early product what's your been your experience around that how do you sort of think about positioning that properly so that there isn't a lot of negativity around in a product or an early version that is, you know, only does a couple of things because that's what early products should do. But then dealing with the fact that users are going to look at that and go, okay, sweet. It does like three things. What about the other 999 things that I would want it ultimately to do? Yeah. It's, that is such an interesting topic because I feel like that is like one of the biggest problems, right? So you, I think ultimately in like the UX world, you want to come out with a product that does the minimum that needs to be done to accomplish their goal. And so like, especially when we talk about an MVP and it's so hard because everyone wants to keep adding, even people at the company themselves want to keep adding onto this MVP, but really releasing it and giving users just what they need to get the job done is best for their experience. And then when you have them all come in and say, well, I want to add this and I want to add that. And then you have this backlog of items that are ultimately going to bloat your product. And then the task at hand, the MVP that you created gets lost in between this bloat because two users wanted this feature and then five users wanted this other feature. But really, 99% of your users really just needed this MVP feature. And I think it's really hard to remember that when you start getting this like inbox of requests 
um, from all of these people. And it's really hard to stick to your guns and say, my product just needs to do to solve the problem that they have and solve it well. Right. So there are going to be requests that are worth pursuing, of course, but that's when user experience comes in and looks at these requests or looks at your product and looks at your user's problem and iterates on it and makes it better, but still at the core just solves that problem and tries to keep the bloat at bay because you can't solve every user's one-off need. So I want to run something by you. And so as I've been thinking about this customer feature seeking perspective that, that, that they're going to bring to a, a product, I wonder if it wouldn't be best to, when you're taking a, a product to them, to yes, to find what's included, which typically happens now, but to also preface it by saying, here's what's not in it so that you overcome their innate desire to want to look for what's not in it. And I wonder if it wouldn't serve us as product people to, to go to them and say, yep, here's the three things that this, that this MVP does, this early product does, and here are the other things that we took into consideration that might even be on the roadmap and maybe even give them a little bit of inkling into the roadmap and maybe timing and prioritization of some of the other things so that we get them out of this seeking mode of saying, okay, yeah, cool, it does three things, but what about this, what about that, what about that? Oh, well, those are on the exclusion list, but in the roadmap, I wonder if that wouldn't help overcome some of this, what I've now labeled as customer feature seeking negativity feedback loop thing. I guess that depends on if you know that there is that much of like a gap in your offering, right? So do you know that there was this important feature that you really couldn't put in or this like that was heavily requested by like 90, 50, 60% of your audience, right? A majority of your audience. Yep. Then that might be worth saying out loud. However, if you're presenting this and you want to get their opinion and you aren't sure what they're going to say is missing, by saying, well, these things are missing, you may end up finding out what's most important to them, right? So if you say, oh, well, this is mi missing um, X, Y, and Z, and they weren't even going to say that or bring up X, Y, and Z, they were going to bring up W, but now they don't want to bring up W because you already said X, Y, and Z is missing. You might lose that opportunity if you bring those things up front. Yeah, Um I agree. I think it's a balance and I'm still even trying to sort of work through, you know, what the, when the client brought this up, I was like, yes, this happens virtually every time you release a new product and an early version of the product, the users will look at it and say, cool. I like the three things that it does. Where's this? What about this? What about that? And, and then the conversation becomes a very negatively framed and toned conversation versus, holy shit, you've built me something that is very simple, elegant, and, and to your point earlier, adds value for me to get this job done that's important to me. 
And the conversation almost, instead of it being that, it focuses on the, here are the things that it doesn't do and it doesn't include today. And so I think we've got to begin to find ways for early products and, you know, startups have to deal with this um, every day is to have that not be a negatively framed and toned conversation, but a positively framed conversation around, yeah, we built this and holy shit, it's going to change your life versus, yeah, you built me this, but it's missing a thousand things. Yeah, I think that if you know that there are going to be items on your roadmap, if you know this is going to be in V2 and V3, it's totally worth putting out there. But if you're still unsure of what's going to come next and you want to... I guess, see what people want next, right? Like how many people bring up X first? How many people bring up Y first? So if you're unsure of what's missing or what you want to do next or what's the most important thing in your V2, Mm -hmm. then I definitely wouldn't frame it that way. But if you know that X would be the perfect addition to your MVP and is definitely going to be in V2, it would be, I think, 100% worth bringing up like this is what we have today. This is coming next. And then it could totally set the frame of mind just on what's coming out now and keep them from looking down the line since you've already brought it up. Right. Do you care about product labels and sort of phases? Do you care about, you know, whether somebody calls, you know, something an MVP or an alpha or beta or a version one or a prototype do you care about what the label is and sort of the stage of the product? Or is it just, here's version one, here's version two, here's version three. I've started to move away from not caring because everybody, it seems like everybody's definition of what an MVP is now is very different. And where it started out very pure, now there's not a lot of purity around it. So I'm just like, whatever the first version of the product that you get into the hands of users, just call that version one. And then you're just going to keep iterating on top of that anyway. So it almost doesn't matter whether you call it an MVP or version one or whatever. If it's the first version that users can use, to me, that's just version one now. And MVP and all those other labels have sort of lost their substance and value. How do you think about it? Yeah, I would agree. I think that it's very hard to find a V1 out there that actually feels like an MVP anymore. Someone somewhere won some battle that turn that thing from a pure MVP to something else. And I think that that has a lot to do usually with how many hands are in the pot and just being unsure of what the MVP should do. And then also thinking that because now there are so many digital products out there that they can't, that they fear that they cannot compete with just a simple MVP. Yeah. And so I think at that point, it just becomes, we'll just call it version one anyway. Yeah. And so now I still think the focus in version one should be have it do three things killer that solve a high value problem, but don't worry about calling it MVP or whatever. Just say that's, that's version one because the mindset around the scope of that and the footprint is what matters the most. What you call it sort of is irrelevant because an MVP is really your first is really your first version of the product. Yeah, um, I'm not I'm not sure most users are going to care or notice anyways. Right, exactly. Most of these labels are made up for us as product builders mm-hmm. so that we 
can make sense of it all. And we're like, oh, first we do this, and then we do this. Well, it's like, mm. I mean, if it's the first version of the product, just call it the first version of the product, and it doesn't really have to have a label you know, beyond that. As long as you're driving toward high-value, simple, elegant solution at all stages, at all phases, and all versions. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for joining me. Any final thoughts, closing remarks? Hopefully this, the Stack Overflow you know, people um, enjoy the conversation and are willing to share it. We were talking earlier that Piper had to you know, make sure that, that Stack Overflow as a company was cool with her doing this. And they probably didn't go listen to any of the podcasts that I've done because they probably would have said no. Um, this guy <laughs> sounds like a babbling idiot. So I appreciate you doing it. And if um, we have the ability to get together again and, and sort of riff on product, I would uh, look forward to it. I think you've got lots of really good insights and perspectives around having worked on several products and, and Stack Overflow obviously being a, a highly recognizable one. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had a blast today. It was really fun to get out of the house <laughs> and and just talk about product. It's it's obviously a favorite topic of mine. Well, I mean, you seem to, you know, be able to get out of the house and conduct yourself properly, you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's always good. As as, you know, as remote, you know, people I think there's often this, you know, specter of, um, you know, oh, now I'm going to go out in public and now I don't really know, you know, what to do because I'm just used to having a screen in front of me and a headset on. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I like tried to walk out of my house in like a hoodie and my husband was like, you're going to leave the house in that when you go and see people. I'm like, yeah. And like he gave me so much shit about it as I went to leave. I was like, God damn it. I'll change, man. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good for him for looking out for you. Yeah. Um, cause, cause, because clearly all this remote work has taken over your your ability, you know, your senses to figure out what's publicly appropriate and what's privately appropriate. Yeah, um, apparently. Yeah. But I mean, most people would say that about me too every day that um, I should, you know, go out in public and dress better. I went to an event with a bunch of uh, CIOs and everybody's in suits and ties and I wore like jeans and a t-shirt and and you know they were like, um, "Do you did you know where you were going?" I was like, "Yeah, I mean this is this is how I dress." So here I am in the sneakers, jeans, and t-shirts, and you guys are wearing these odd, you know, coordinated outfits. So you, I feel uh, like who's the who's the weird one in this equation? I would say I would argue that it's you guys in you know in the coordinated jackets and pants setups. Yeah, I feel like part of it is also has a lot to do with like a lot of companies like don't require you to dress up as much anymore. And then the fact that a lot of people work behind computers and whatnot, I think you see a lot more casual dress and even like sweatpants at Walmart, um, just in society in general. Now <laughs> I have seen a lot of people, um, at places like target showing up in for a while. It was, it was athleisure, right. That, that people would just, you know, wear whatever they're going to work out in. And that's just what they would wear for the end of the day. Now I've seen a lot of people actually showing up in like pajamas, which is, I think we've crossed a new threshold where it's now socially acceptable because enough people have done it. And we've gotten over that awkward stage that you will consistently see people out in public in what appear to be pajama wear. Yeah. See, my kid always asks to go to the store in like pajamas and I won't let him. However, I do let him go out. Like I took him to Kroger once in a cat boy costume. So I guess it's I'm, close to pajama th level. Th that's, pr that's, prob <laughs> that's probably far above pajama level. Does he wear a costume frequently? 
He loves costumes. He's really not into toys as much as he is into costumes. So he has quite a number of superhero costumes. And I guess I'm the sucker that bought him quite a number of superhero costumes. Uh, apparently, right, you're you're the enabler. Yes. Um, Halloween is a tough time, too, because they're, like, in every store. So I have to say no a lot more than, you know, to costumes in June where so, they're, like... So this is his time of the year, though, because now the costumes are highly accessible. Yes, yes. It's his time of the year. It's my time to hide from stores because <laughs> I will go broke. Well, and it also sounds like you wouldn't know how to dress properly to go to the store either. So it probably works out, you know, to everybody's best interest. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me, Piper. Appreciate it. This is Ryan Frederick from AWH, and this has been Beyond the Roadmap, a podcast about building products. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at AWHnet to learn more.